0: Welcome to Profiles on WFIU. I'm Josh Brewer. Each week on Profiles, we bring you conversations with members of our community, as well as visiting artists, scholars, and writers to hear the stories behind their work. This week on the program, we'll hear two conversations. At the end of the show, we'll hear an excerpt from an interview with silent film accompanist Dennis James. James performed his annual Halloween show this past Friday at the IU Auditorium, accompanying silent film classic, The Hunchback of Notre Dame. In honor of the performance, and the Halloween season, we'll listen to a conversation WFIU's George Walker had with James back in 2011. But first, we'll hear a conversation with Eric Zela. When Zela was 11 years old, his friend Chris asked him to film a shot-for-shot remake of Indiana Jones, The Raiders of the Lost Ark. Between 1982 and 1989, they did just that. J.D. Gray spoke with Zela in September when he was in Bloomington visiting the IU cinema.
1: When Eric Zela was 11 years old, he started an ambitious project. With his friends and classmates, Zayla set out to create a shot-for-shot remake of the first Indiana Jones film, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Over the next seven years, the result is being praised by critics for its presentation of fandom and the enthusiastic movie making. Uh, you're listening to Profiles on WFIU. I'm J.D. Gray. Joining us now is Eric Zela. Eric Zela, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, J.D. So, uh, the first question, why, of all films, why Raiders of the Lost Ark? Well, you know, uh, my partner in crime, Chris
2: uh, Strompolis, who played Indiana Jones, gets credit for picking the project. He had uh, seen it and um, wanted to be Indiana Jones. Uh, You know, he was a Star Wars fan, but Raiders seemed more rooted in our world a bit and a very sort of appealing hero. For me, I, um, you know, as director, you know, I wanted to see what what a shot-for-shot remake of Raiders Lost Ark starring kids look like. And that was appealing. You know, the movie split my brain open when I saw it, you know, by the time I got to the boulder scene. I've never, didn't know movies could do that, really. So when Chris pitched the idea to me, I I said yes. Of course, in that five seconds in which he called me up, I envisioned all the sets being built, uh, everyone cast, I'd just sort of wander on and, and help. Little did I know the only thing that Chris had done at that point was buy the script from Walden Books in the Mall and cast himself as Indiana Jones, as any good producer will do. Um, but yeah, there was something about Raiders that uh, that was kind of lightning in a bottle. You know, I'm I'm grateful that we chose our subject matter well. If we'd chosen, say, Smokey and the Bandit, uh, I don't think anybody would have cared.
1: You worked closely with your your friends and your classmates. I mentioned that. And I'm wondering, you're in the suburbs, you're in Mississippi. Were you thinking, how do I turn this world into the world of Indiana Jones?
2: Well, you know, uh, yes, growing up in small town Mississippi, as we did, you know, it's Uh, we had we were fortunate enough to have access to my mom's house, which had a big sprawling basement that became kind of our improvised soundstage for just about all the interiors. You know, the garage uh, made up to look like a cave, the laundry room, the idle room, largest room, the basement, the well of souls, and converted an old uh, hot water heater into a giant jackal statue. It seemed like the perfect sort of place to to make this. Of course, there were some challenges as well. Where do you find a location for the Sahara Desert in Mississippi? Though we managed that too.
1: And and it was going to be a shot for shot remake. And what that means is that you need to have the film storyboarded exactly mm-hmm. the same as it was during the, during the film. But you began production in 1982. Uh, so we have a clip from the documentary about mm-hmm. the film. You talk about the experience a little bit, and you're showing a book that has your storyboards. And the second voice we hear is one of your collaborators, Jason Lamb.
2: Here are, finally, years later, Xeroxed all of them and bound them together and made three copies for uh, Chris and Jason and I, drawn from memory, because, uh, of course, Raiders was not out on videotape at this time. So He saw the movie one. once, <laughs> and those storyboards are dead on. He is an amazingly well-rounded left brain person. Uh, Jason. So a bit of hyperbole on Jason's part there. I didn't just see it once. We'd started in the summer of 82. Um, This was the summer after Raiders came out in 81. And they re-released Raiders in theaters. They used to do that back then. And so we saw Raiders as many times as our allowance would sustain. That is twice. So I saw it three times. But the latter two times, I was trying to commit as much into memory as possible and also snuck in an audio tape cassette recorder. Uh, Chris actually attempted this first and got busted by a copyright-conscious usher. I managed to sneak through and uh, and got an illicit recording of the uh, soundtrack of the film. I, I guess I look less mischievous than Chris. But yeah, that became um, something of a memory jog, as imperfect and rough as this audio recording was, it had marred by sounds of audiences laughing and cheering, it didn't matter because it was to help stir the recollections as I sat down the summer of 82 and draw uh, 602 storyboards along with everything Raiders we could get our hands on. every um, The photo insert from the movie on record, uh, the storybook, the um, trading cards, copy of uh, Starlog magazine that includes photos, and splayed all out on the dining room table and used those as memory jogs to to draw uh, the blueprint basically from memory. And then years later, Raiders comes out on uh laser and we're like, oh, we get to see it. And, you know, it was
1: pretty accurate for the most part, uh, all told. And so you have 602 frames. 602. Yeah, that's right. And you're going to use that as a blueprint to recreate the film. And so the challenge then, right, is to recreate some of the scenes as an 11-year-old with a budget that is virtually non-existent, yeah. right, in Mississippi. So let's go through a few of the, the key scenes so people can kind of get an idea in their head of what this might look like. Um, I think when we talk about Raiders of the Lost Ark, mm-hmm. we talk about one scene in particular that is kind of iconic, and that's the scene where Indiana Jones, he goes into the temple and he takes a bag of sand and he replaces a golden idol and then a large boulder chases after him. It's maybe the most iconic scene in the film. Yeah. So as an 11-year-old in Mississippi, what did you do? Wow. Well, you know, I should preface this by
2: saying, you know, we were so young, you know, 11 and 12, respectively, Chris and I, when we started and Jason joined us the following year, we naively thought it would take a a mere summer. And and to coin uh, a certain archaeologist, uh, you know, uh, we're making this up as we went, you know, didn't know how we were going to pull this off. Uh, But yeah, the Peruvian sequence, that was, you know, when Indy... when indie starting with the, yeah, the, the Idol swap, we actually made the Golden Idol out of a uh, shrimp net bobber with half of a Christmas ornament, duct tape on top, carved a face on it with a knife and sprayed the whole thing gold. Yeah, uh, lots of spray paint used in my youth. In fact, to this day, the aroma of spray paint brings me back to <laughs> childhood. Go figure. And so we had this spotlight from Chris's grandfather's nightclub that uh, we we set up to create a shaft of light illuminating the idol on this pedestal and jury-rigged the sinking uh, stone on top. So the whole thing, of course, sinks when Indy gets the the bag swap wrong. For the bag itself, um, we actually used a Crown Royal bag, one of those little details that everyone seems to notice and and get a kick out of. Um, (laughs) uh, So... For the set, you know, this was uh, in my mom's basement. We uh, pockmarked the walls with uh, with holes, uh, fake holes, to present the uh, the dart holes that, you know, when Indy gets the bag swap wrong and and the bag sinks and the whole temple cave starts to shake as the the booby trap mechanisms rumble into place, uh, and Indy turns to flee and and uh, running across the uh, the booby trap tile floor on the way out, and darts supposedly shoot out of the walls. Um, We had neighborhood kids waiting in the wings to to blow darts. And also, um, on the other side of the basement, cinder block walls to push down uh, various rocks covered with dirt to create this effect that the room was collapsing. That was one set. Then elsewhere in the basement, uh, in this hallway, we constructed the pit scene, where Indy swings across the pit to get back and... uh, Satipo, the treacherous Peruvian guide, makes it on the other side, and we have uh, jury-rigged this uh, this lowering slab made out of cardboard behind him, which he slips underneath, and a platform for Indy to leap across the pit and make it just in time, only to find Satipo uh, impaled on spikes in the chamber of light. He'd forgotten about that booby trap. Uh, so a lot of uh, latex rubber, courtesy of Jason, to dress up clay who was playing satipo uh in lots of fake blood lots of uh red food coloring and then then of course Indy encounters the boulder and uh and that's uh in my mom's garage dressed up to look like a cave lots of time climbing up in the oak trees uh around my mom's house pulling down spanish moss and stapling it to sheets of plywood uh to make it look cave like sticking uh, stalactites carved out of styrofoam onto nails stuck in the ceiling beams. Um, and then there's the boulder itself. And that uh, that was our most challenging prop to make. Uh, and it actually took us no less than five years to make it. Uh, I should, you know, uh, I should perhaps it took us seven years total to make the film as kids from age 12 to 19. But. Boulder was our most challenging prop and kind of metaphorically, um, uh, you know, represented the challenge of the film itself. Our first boulder was uh, made when we were 12. Uh, We stayed way past our bedtimes uh, in Chris's room, making our first boulder out of crisscross bamboo stalks, duct tape, and cardboard. Looked awesome. And then about the time the sun came up, we realized it was too big to get out of the room. (laughs) <laughs> so he squeezed it through the door frame and smashed it all to hell. Yeah. it was trashed. Um boulder number two was uh Chris said, I got it. A cable spool. I saw one behind you know, this this uh building. We'll cover it with cardboard, paint that gray, and roll it uh past Indy and finally saw the cable spool is only three feet high. And thought, well maybe if we shoot it from a low angle it'll look cool. Nope looked pretty ridiculous actually, and plus it's more of a cylinder than a boulder. Boulder number three, I had uh, ordered a weather balloon out of the back of a comic book. Spent uh, Stayed up way late uh, tearing strips of newspaper t- for this big vat of papier-mâché and covered the, uh, the inflated uh, weather balloon with a first coat. Came down the next morning to find it popped. Boulder number four, cut up my hands, um, bending chicken wire into this frame, and I was going to cover that with papier-mâché. Well, hurricane hit Mississippi that year, and I still remember uh, watching helplessly through the living room window as uh, Hurricane winds buffet our chicken fry- frame wire boulder and sending it off into the water. I have no idea to this day where it is. But it turns out boulder number five was really the trick. Uh, my mom gave me the idea of... Um, Fiberglass. She knew one of her insurance clients was uh, did fiberglass work for boats. So he was persuaded by uh, myself and Jason to allow us to dig a hole in his backyard. I'd researched ancient building techniques that the Egyptians used um, in the local library and learned about things like uh, plumb line. And I jury-rigged this apparatus to, like, drop this uh, rope with a spoon tied to the end and burrowed out the hole— to form a perfect hemisphere and lined that with fiberglass which hardened and popped out the perfect hemisphere and repeated the process a second time and then joined the two halves together and finally, five years in at this point, we had our six-foot high spherical boulder that uh, rolled down two 40-foot long untreated telephone poles in my mom's garage made up to look like a cave. So that's how we
1: did it uh, in a nutshell. With five boulders. Yes. And so one of the more dangerous moments uh, came a little later, right? You're recreating the bar scene. Wow. Uh, and then this, this is a famous scene in Nepal in the film where uh, Indiana Jones, he has a run-in with the Nazis, and this whole bar goes up in flames. Characters catch on fire. We have a clip uh, from the documentary about your film, and uh, I believe it's your mother that speaks first. Mm, your I mother so. speaks first, and then you speak.
3: Suddenly I get a call from Elaine one of the guys at the uh, studio saw them editing this print with this fire. And uh, she said, uh, we need to talk.
2: <laughs> I knew this needed to be really spectacular. <sighs> and uh, I'm embarrassed to say that I asked the guys to douse my back with gasoline that day.
1: How far into the production was it when this happened? This was the second summer. The um, the first
2: First summer was all pre-production, and we didn't get to actually shooting until year number two, uh, summer of 83. And, um, and yeah, you don't really, at age 13, have a basic understanding of the essential fragility of the human body. So yeah, some uh, pretty ill-advised fire stunt on our part. Tell me about that. So, you know, uh, the character in the scene catches on fire. is called the Ratty Nepalese one of the bad guys that Indy's uh, uh, firing at. And I wasn't going to ask a neighborhood kid to do this. So I stunt double for the ratty Nepalese. Um, I have a fire-retardant raincoat uh, underneath, you know, safety first. Uh, so I naively think I'm going to be okay. Uh, cover it with, I think, uh, the costume, which I think was made of Chris's grandmother's shawl, of all things, and a, a fake beard and, and turban. And... Um, Up to this point, we'd been using isopropyl alcohol, which is safer. You know, you pour it on the surface of something, light it, burns the fluid, but not the material itself. But gasoline was supposed to be more spectacular. And so, um, yeah, I I said, let's, you know, let's use gasoline for this, guys. And they did. We had two kids with smothering blankets waiting in the wings and also just in case of fire extinguisher. That was the, the plans underway. So there's this little kid with a lit torch just out off screen whose job it is only to light me up. So I set it up and uh, we roll and I call action and turn and, and uh, uh, I'm, I'm lit up. Turn, hit my mark, scream and call cut. And that's the cue for the smothering blanket. So one kid rushes forth and throws the blanket on my back. And in his eagerness, almost immediately, pulls it off. Oh, he's still on fire. Back on with the blanket. Off, on, off, on, fanning the flames higher. The smell of singed hair fills the small basement room. I, I'm, I'm. It feels like someone has put a electric blanket on my back and turned it up all the way to the top. Is is what the sensation felt like. But I feel the flames, yeah, licking the back of my hair, and and actually that awful awful smell of burnt hair and so it's just not working finally chris uh jumps forth and uh and throws me to the ground and rolls me over to try to put it out meanwhile the kids in the foreground are holding the fire extinguisher reading the instructions pull pin uh, you know so it's no surprise that in seeing that shot at the local tv station uh someone had alerted our moms that might want to look at uh, what we're what we're doing um. Anyway, they finally get the pen out and blast me with it, and I was actually upset at the time because, you know, it costs real
1: money to to fill a fire extinguisher, and we didn't have much of it. What was it about the film that you thought it was so important to make that you were willing to risk your safety, your family's uh, house? What was your reason? What, what drove you? was it just to get it complete or was there something did it mean something to you that the idea of finishing the film
2: well this was fairly early in our uh endeavor you know and we did plenty of dangerous things as kids you know um looking at the outtakes i don't think we were aware of just how dangerous it was holding a lit torch in one hand and a mason jar slopping over with gasoline in the other uh, i cringe looking at some of the outtakes so we were very very lucky you know, at the time, you know, at uh, age 12 or 13, as I guess it was, it was, you know, we just, we loved the movie and it was a, a fun thing to do. Um, it was a lot of work and and very challenging, but we'd kind of gotten wrapped up a- in how much we loved it and were sort of, well, kind of obsessed in terms of, of finishing it, you know, and this became more of a thing as the years went on. We had no idea that it would take seven years to do I think we would have been scared to death had we known. But it's just we were kind of well, we were young in terms of the safety issue and naive, but as far as, um, as, far as doing it, it was kind of an escape, you know, it was sort of a, something that we, we threw ourselves into, and yeah, it, over the years it just became something of an obsession.
1: You're listening to Profiles on WFIU. I'm J.D. Gray. We're joined today by Eric Zala. Eric Zala, with his friends in Mississippi as a child, recreated, and a teenager, recreated Raiders of the Lost Ark, shot for shot. The film took over seven years to make, and uh, recently a, a documentary was released covering the film. So, the film took over seven years to make, and throughout that time, a lot was probably changing in your life because this is a, this is a pivotal time in people's lives. So, what did you learn about yourself during the production of the film, and how did your life change? Hmm. Yeah, you do
2: change a bit from age twelve to nineteen. Um, you know, discover girls uh, among you know other things. Um, well. I discovered, I suppose, first and foremost, that I had a deep and abiding love for for filmmaking. You know, I was, prior to that point, wanted to be a comic book artist. Comfortableness with drawing helped with, say, drawing the storyboards. But by the end of it, I I was bit by the film bug and actually went on to um, major in film and television production at uh, NYU and to pursue filmmaking after that. So that certainly was a, a formulative thing. And... I think helped also in stealing my determination. I mean, it's it's seven years is a long time, and it, it's very tempting to to give up. Um, and uh, I was not really in danger of giving up, but to see the um, the results of of not doing so, of of actually finishing, was a very satisfying thing. To finally, after all this time, after pushing voices of self doubt uh, aside. You know you'll never finish, you know, or putting you know disregarding naysayers who've said, you know, if you ever finish, nobody's going to want to watch this thing, and instead listening to your own internal voice of wanting to see it through, wanting to see it uh complete very great glad uh for that and because if not it'd just be a box of videotapes in somebody's basement and and there'd be so much that that wouldn't be um experienced. So I think I think the experience changed me in in those ways. Did you ever have a moment where you thought this isn't going to be finished? Lots, yeah, plenty of um, moments of doubt. Um, and in fact, you know, if I'm honest and, and don't uh, uh, strip away what nostalgia I feel for that time of growing up, I mean, there was a there was a, a sense of dread a, 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 at times that we were never going to finish and it all be for naught. But yeah, you you just have to to push those uh, voices, self doubt aside. Something that we actually hearken back to later on as adults when we did the final scene as adults. You know, the uh, same lesson, life lessons, really sort of apply there. Um, whether you're a kid or an adult, is just have to tune out the negativity, tune out the naysaying, internal and external, and plunge ahead and. Keep pushing and eventually sooner or later you look around and you've done it you've you've crossed the finish line
1: a lot of the pressure came from yourself probably came from your collaborators knowing that you had to trust each other yeah what kind of effects did that pressure have on your on your youth hmm um, well you know
2: you know I think there was a, a mutual accountability there um, but I think well it would have Made me pretty sad had we never finished, and I think my safe to say my life would be <laughs> tremendously different had had we not. But I don't know that's that's really uh, hard to say. I I'm very grateful for having a really unorthodox, unusual childhood, but in terms of um, the effects of the the pressure, yeah, that's 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 tough to to say. I I know that to this day I, I I'm kind of fastidious about wanting to finish things. I'm kind of a completionist.
1: Did you know that about yourself when you started making the film?
2: No, but whether that's brought on by the the film or always kind of, sort of a facet of my personality. I mean, we've sort of observed that we brought different strings to the table. Chris is a starter, you know. I I would not have had the the idea or the initiative to to kick off the project, but I'm more of the finisher type of personality of like, "All right, guys, come on, we we have to we got to complete this thing. We've got you know Chris the gregarious one would draw people in I was something of the disciplinary, and I kept folks there and tried to as director keep us on target with a consistent vision throughout and yeah to to finish you know and that was uh that came to a head late in the process when um Chris and I had a falling out over how much work to give the sound in post production and so we nearly faltered and and never finished even as we were almost over the finish line and I got. Chris to uh, to get back into the editing booth and finish it, um, even if it took Last Crusade. Coming out that summer is kind of a, a surreptitious way of getting Chris inspired again to it, go back and do the sound right. How so? Well, you know, we had, um, you know, this is jumping a- ahead a-, a bit in chronology, but when we finally, you know, wrapped uh, our last scene in the summer of 88, we then began the task of editing all the previous year's worth of footage. Being the 80s, you didn't have Final Cut Pro. So we asked Chris's mom, who was the local TV anchor at the ABC affiliate WLOX, if we could have access to the editing equipment. The answer came back, yes, but only when it's not being used, which was 10 o'clock at night to six in the morning. So we uh, lived that final month of the summer like vampires, uh, editing all night long in this little closet-sized uh, editing cubicle, and we uh, uh, we finally got to picture lock. You know, in this very laborious process, linear editing, not like today. Um, if we messed up one shot, you know, uh, we couldn't go back and in- insert a shot later. It was uh, it was uh, like a train that could not stop. But uh, when we finally did finish Picture Lock at last, said, great. Now, uh, all we have to do is the sound work. That is, you know, drop in the, the sound effects, uh, lay on the, the John Williams score, punch up any dialogue and add, dub in any dialogue that's soft. It should only take, I don't know, three weeks. And Chris said, three weeks? Screw that. I'm done. And, you know, and. And he was pretty burnt out, you know. Jason and and Chris were both kind of ready to be done. I said, "Guys, come on! And sound is a really important aspect of this. We gotta we gotta finish." Um, around this time, I think I I, I took a um, a single night off for I think my girlfriend's birthday, and came back as as uh, would be our routine the the following night at ten o'clock to meet at the station. But no sign of Chris or Jason, and I go up to our editing closet and find the the box of video and a note from Chris: "Hey Eric, movie's done. Eric and Jay. That's it." So I I put in the master tape and with some dread and and watch what they'd done and uh, and then with mounting horror there was uh, there were entire passages what passages did have music it wasn't synced up um, there were mismatched effects or, or not queued up. Um it was it was uh wasn't finished in short. So um I left the station and uh got there after after going through it and trying to like come up with a, a, a plan. I go up to Chris's house just as the sun is coming up and Chris and Jay are, are in the driveway in Chris's minivan and I walk up to Chris and say, Hey powers down the window, and I said, Chris, it's not finished. And he said, it's finished. I said, Chris, come on. We're almost there. It's, it, You know that it's not done. Screw you, man, and uh, peeled out and literally left me in a cloud of dust. Um, this was the end of the summer of 88, and uh, I was pretty angry, to be honest. So our film sat unfinished, almost, but not quite finished um, throughout the school year, I went on to be a freshman at NYU. And around the time I'm back in Mississippi for summer break, early on in the summer, Last Crusade comes out. And so I call up Chris and I say, hey, I know we're not talking at all, but do you want to go see the third one? Okay, sure. So we meet up at the theater and watch Last Crusade. And as I had a feeling it would, um, it inspired Chris to... To get back in the editing room and, and do this right and sure enough he gave me a call later and and uh said we should do this and so chris and i did got back to the station and did it right and uh got the music just so and uh the sound effects you know our our best sound effect of the boulder rolling from the movie on record or the wilhelm scream and all that and uh and finally, it was done. And in August of 89, we had our hometown premiere at the auditorium of local Pepsi Cola bottling plant in Gulfport, Mississippi, uh, for about 200 friends and family. And then I thought, okay, this uh, 12-year Raider saga is now done. How'd that feel to have your friends and family there watching the film that you'd spent years oh, creating? It was wonderful. It was really, really great. We I wore a tux that night. It was that special occasion. Looking back on the footage, it looks kind of like a prom night, um, <laughs> but uh, it was wonderful. The uh, the audience, though probably sympathetic, uh, reacted very well to it. You know, we gave brief speeches at the beginning. You know, and each of us gave the moms a bouquet of roses for their support uh, throughout the years of making it. It was really wonderful. It was sublime, and so. The next morning, when we're there to kind of pick up the uh the arc and the other various props that we'd use to decorate the lobby uh I felt a great sense of satisfaction afterwards, you know, knowing that wow, we did it, you know it was finally done after seven years. I felt great happiness uh and relief, I think above all things. Little did I know Raiders wasn't done by a long shot. It's kind of like the mafia in that way, you know when uh, you think you're done pulls you back in um <laughs> but for 14 years it uh it sat on our shelf and um and we moved on to life and college and jobs and
1: whatnot that videotape you kept on your shelf did it give you a sense of uh, permanence and a, a sense that all those years that it had amounted to something? yeah
2: i mean above all um you know I, I felt a great sense of of relief and satisfaction to have having finished uh it was remarkable to think that all that blood sweat and tears would was all sort of compressed in this single sort of captured in this uh object. Chris was embarrassed by it he told me later that he he never showed his copy to anybody um sort of viewed as a souvenir of misspent youth um You know, because it's Indiana Jones, and he was going to college, majoring in acting in the college, Wooster, in Ohio, and I don't know, Indiana Jones wasn't cool. Jason definitely, at in art school, Spielberg was not considered cool, but but for me, I I dug it, and um, every so often, uh, I think a couple times, I actually uh, brought it down to uh, my dorm TV lounge and upon request, uh, played it and this crowd gathered. And by the end of it, you know, there was a crowd of 40, 40 college kids, you know, cheering and and clapping. And, uh, you know, it was, it was great fun. And, you know, asked me questions about it afterwards, put my tape back on the shelf and that was it. You know, um, we didn't really know what we had.
1: So for 14 years, the film was out of your life it came back in. How did that happen? Well, you know, it, uh, I think um, after I
2: graduated college and paid off my student loans and eventually found my way to Los Angeles, I had uh, a roommate, who, uh, a buddy from mine, uh, of mine from NYU, Frank Reynolds, who made a copy of, of uh, our film. I showed it to him the night before. He asked uh, I said, sure. And he um, passed on to a friend who passed on to a friend. Six degrees of separation, f- copy falls in the hands of Eli Roth horror movie director uh-huh, mm-hmm. who had just finished Cap Fever and was taking meetings around Hollywood including at DreamWorks Spielberg's company so he brings this battered VHS tape to his own pitch meeting and slides it across the conference room table and says you guys should really check this out had a production looks at it handwritten label Raiders Lost Ark uh, I've seen it thanks uh, no you, you haven't seen this uh, so the guy takes it home and watches it and Calls Eli back, this is amazing. I'm going to show the tape to Stephen. Uh, Stephen Spielberg? Yeah, yeah. Uh, calls him back, Stephen's got the tape. He's going to watch it this weekend. Calls Eli back on Monday. Stephen loved it. He wants to write the guys a letter of appreciation. What are their addresses? Well, Eli doesn't know. He's never met us from Adam. But thankfully, this is... Um, This is uh, the '90s by this point, and so through the internet, uh, he manages to track one of us down, Jason, who passes on uh, Chris and I's contact info, and that's how. Actually, this is uh, this is 2003 by this point, uh, and how on an otherwise ordinary day at the office, um, you know, I'm working uh, for Electronic Arts in Orlando, Florida, at this point as manager QA. I get an email. Hi, Eric. You don't know me. My name's Eli Roth, and I'm a horror movie director, and this might sound strange, but Steven Spielberg has seen your Raiders movie, and he loves it. He wants to write your letter of appreciation. What's your address? And I'm thinking, all right, who's pulling my leg? But I wound up talking to Eli about two, three hours that night, and it dawned on me, this is for real. Um, and so, of course, I gave him my address, and about a week later, um, envelope shows up in the mail, return address, SS, and... My wife takes a series of photographs of me in various stages of opening the letter. I I just looked down on you know this uh, letter from with Spielberg's stationery, um, thinking, "Wow, it can't get any better than this." But I was wrong, um, and there was much more to to come. But that's that's how it was uh, discovered. And then Eli, around this time, had also. Brought the tape to Namathon, which is a 24-hour movie festival in Austin, Texas, at the the Elmo Draft House uh, Cinema there, uh, by Harry Knowles, internet film critic of Ain't It Cool News, uh, who programs the fest. So Eli brought it along for Harry's birthday. It's held each year in Harry's birthday uh, honor. Uh, Harry says, "Well, thanks. You know, we're all programmed up, but I'll hold on to it." As it happens, there was uh, technical problems in doing the advanced screening of Two Towers, um, the Lord of the Rings sequel, and uh, that was going to be shown a couple weeks before it was out in theaters. So while they're working on fixing the projector, um, someone grabs the VHS tape and just sticks it in the VCR and presses play, and it plays while folks in the audience are having breakfast. It's about 8 o'clock in the morning at this point, and uh house lights are up no introduction whatsoever but nevertheless people start to pay attention and say hey that's indiana jones a kid whoa look at the boulder and and it 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 grabs their attention and holds it and they're cheering and uh uh and it makes it all the way through just about to go into the truck scene and then the cry goes up hey we fixed the projector Time for two towers, and the audience actually were told booze, um wanting to see the rest of our crazy little film. Um, we had no idea that this was going on, uh, but Eli fills me in on this you know, over a phone call that night and and it was through that that uh Tim League, who uh, ran the Al- elmo Draft house uh, cinema in Austin and uh, it was uh, Tim that uh, invited us out for a proper world premiere. And uh, so I was like, well, can we do this? So, okay, I guess we can. And so uh, flew us out and reunited us, basically. Um, Chris and I hadn't spoken in years. We'd had we'd had another falling out uh, while rooming together in Los Angeles. You know, 30-year-plus friendship, lots of ups and downs. Um, but this is yet another way that Raiders kind of like Drew us back together again, and so we hugged and and it was as if uh you know those bad tensions had hadn't happened, you know, and we walked down to the to the theater and to see this uh line wrapped around the block, and uh we asked someone in line, What are you guys in line for? Oh, this Raiders remake that kids did, like oh no, do they realize that they're standing in line to see a movie shot in my mom 's basement you know so i I remember. Uh, nervously being inside the theater packed uh, to the gills as as the lights went down and noting the location of the exits in case I needed to make a break for it in case, I don't know, they rioted because of its substandard quality. But instead, the audience loved it. It was, never saw it with a, a, a real audience before. You know, the 200 Friends and Family back in 89 was the closest, but these were passionate movie lovers that that knew Raiders so well. And I guess I think among other things appreciated that we got the details right. I mean, there was a reason why it took us seven years. We were kind of perfectionists. Um, but by the time the boulder rolls down the poles in my mom's garage, I mean, they're on their feet cheering. It was a night like none other. Um, and finally, when the film finished, uh, you know, they gave us a like a four minute standing ovation. And I remember getting up in front of the audience and saying, this was never supposed to happen. No one had uh, could have anticipated this, and we just made this for ourselves. But it was such an unexpected, uh, wonderful
1: thing to have our, our little childhood opus embraced like that. So the film was finished except for one scene, and we haven't really talked about that yet. Uh-huh. But when you first made the film and you finished in 89, there's one scene that just proved too difficult to film and that's a there's a a fight scene in Raiders of the Lost Ark that features a large airplane it's moving about in circles there's a camel involved there's many explosions Um, it would take a lot of special effects even in a big big budgeted Hollywood film and so you decided over 30 years later to get your friends together again and say we're going to go ahead and we're going to do the final scene the airplane scene why did you decide to go back and film the final scene? Almost didn't. And,
2: you know, after our film was discovered in 2003 by accident and after that world premiere in Austin, uh, venues started to seek us out, and we began touring and giving Q&As, and folks would often ask, hey, what about the airplane scene? Um, and we explained that, yeah, as kids, it was just out of our reach. Where are we going to get an airplane? How are we going to blow it up? Um, but we'd joke and say, "Yeah, we should get the band back together again, do this right, and and go and shoot shoot it now as adults." And think anybody'd notice the continuity uh, gap? Haha. And Chris had had suggested it, but I had uh, at one point in all seriousness. But I uh, I was reluctant to do so, um, primarily because I thought, "Well, we want to make original films. Um, do we really want the world thinking that?" All we're capable of doing as raiders, so I had said kind of, kind of nix that. Um, but later on, you know, when we were approached by Jeremy Kuhn and Tim Scowson to the documentary, Chris brought it up again and reminded me actually of you know one uh, a key thing that back when we were kids, when we were doing this, we certainly weren't concerned with what the world thought. We just did this for ourselves because we loved the movie and. Who does get a chance to go back and do what they always wanted to do back from when they were 12? Uh, whether it's climbing on board a, a flying wing, you know, uh, blowing it up, doing the scene that I had reoccurring dreams of shooting uh, for, no joke, five years after we finished in 89. So even though I knew it was going to take minimum a year of my life and untold time and resources, uh, I thought, okay, yeah, Let's let's do this, you know, and and for
1: those same reasons, which served us well back when we did this before. You had a plane built for you. You assembled a crew, including an explosions expert, and um, kind of the final shot you need is the the large plane blowing up. Uh, this is a very difficult thing to do because this is a this is a, how large was the plane? Oh, it was uh, had a seventy eight foot wingspan, which uh, makes it larger than many houses. And uh, we're going to play a clip from the documentary in this clip. The bottom of the plane is blown out, and your explosives expert, he walks up to the plane, and he's looking under the wing to figure out why the rest of the plane has not yet exploded. T.T., what are you going to do? Are you going
0: to just toss that thing under there?
1: Yeah. I'm going to get real
2: dangerous.
3: There. Stop, stop. Give me empty out of right. here. Get back, get back, get back, get back. Get he's breathing, he's breathing. Shock, like his
2: pulse. He's pulling speed up so he doesn't go into shock.
1: And so. He's fine. Your explosive expert, your crew member, he turns out to be okay. Um, and following that, you walk up to him and he asks you if you have the shot, which is very nice. But I'm wondering, in that moment, when you see him by the plane and the plane explodes and he flies back and he hits the ground and it doesn't seem to be conscious, what were you thinking? Because this is mm-hmm. all, This is simultaneously, someone's life is at risk, but also this is the moment where you finished shooting every shot, Right. So what are you thinking in that moment? At that moment my universe turned
2: black. I mean, yeah, I had built this up in my mind to be a culmination of like 35 years worth of 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 effort, you know, uh, of of collective teamwork effort to of, of finally making this happen. And so when the plane blew and Dan was knocked back and and ragdolled, you know i, I th- the prevailing thought in my head was no no it can't it can't have all come to this this is so wrong it can't you know that someone could be actually hurt by this you know it was so it was uh i think my whole life just kind of just dissolved you know i i, I couldn't fathom it i couldn't wrap my brain around it um and ran down to uh, off the bluff to to see Dan and thank god he was okay um and yeah he, he says <laughs> did we get the shot um I, I um it was a a pretty it was the most horrific moment i think in my entire life you know to f- for that uh time to happen um so we sent uh Dan to the hospital even though he he said he was fine and um he got checked out a couple hours later and uh you know we had pre-scheduled days before um rap party and after after that after that you know almost sort of like war experience um it bonded the crew as if in concrete and we all had a need to sort of talk about it uh and when Dan shows up to the rap party um to thunder supplies. It was it was a really wonderful thing. So anyway, great great relief and this, you know, this would all be different if Dan weren't okay. Um so thank thank God he uh he was. You know, we had the irony, we joked to our wives that uh, hey, you know, um we're hiring a professional pyrotechnician, so not like when we're kids. We're we're playing it safe and just goes to show you, you can plan and do all the right things
1: and still Things can go amiss, but thank God he's okay. So you finally you get your final shot, the oh. airplane explodes, um, and over thirty years of work culminates into this, and you decide to leave your job and pursue movie making. And I wanna know what that looks like in your life. The airplane scene
2: came to mean in- a lot not only to me and to Chris but to so many other folks I mean this this scene was made through the efforts of many many hands and uh, at one point uh, I was under pressure from work to to quit uh, the scene and come back to work though it was actually in reality a slow time at work so I knew that had I gone back to work uh, the film Undone it would have been well really for nothing it would have been sort of graveyard shift uh, pace at work, because it was beyond just me or even Chris at this point. I mean so many people had worked so hard to make the dream real and and uh, ultimately, after a lot of thought and and put more thought into that than anything in my life and for me, that's saying a lot decided all right i'm I'm parting ways you know, and told my boss as much, and so I did leave uh leave behind. Uh, the video game company that i worked for um to uh to follow dreams there's nothing that i know that it's more difficult than filmmaking but nothing more satisfying as well and i'm i'm very fortunate to have a wife who uh values following dreams over financial security and you know whether it's it's directing or or other you know i mean there's there's a number of of interesting possibilities for uh what's next but uh I'd rather have my choices dictated by hope rather than fear. And so very happy to have had the experience and to take charge of my life again, if that makes sense.
1: Thanks for uh thanks for your time today. Absolutely. Thanks, JD.
0: That was J.D. Gray speaking with filmmaker Eric Zela. You are listening to Profiles on WFIU. I'm Josh Brewer. In the final part of the hour, we'll hear an excerpt from an interview with silent film accompanist Dennis James. James performed his annual Halloween show this past Friday at the IU Auditorium, accompanying the silent film classic The Hunchback of Notre Dame. WFIU's George Walker spoke with James back in 2011, when he was on the IU campus as part of the Jorgensen Guest Filmmaker Lecture Series. You came to IU as a pianist or as an organist?
3: No, I came enrolled as I was going to be a church organist. (laughs) And fortunately, I really look back and see how fortunate it was to come to IU because it was such a big school. You know, I could vanish, even the, the music school was the largest in the world at that point. Literally, they attempted to do that and succeeded to get the enrollment the largest. So what happened is that um, I vanished. I created my own degree program. I I majored in organ and minored in business. Really? Yeah. Uh, Accounting and all sorts of things. And then Cognate Field was film studies, which were at that very moment emerging. Uh, The first academic film study program was here at Indiana. And I was in the first with Harry Gettle, Dr. Harry Gettle. So I just sort of fell into what turned out to be exactly what I needed. So I came here as an organ student. Somehow, I don't remember who, but I do remember I was told, they show silent movies over at Wittenberg. And Harry was showing on Wednesday nights uh, a history of film course, and the demonstration was, was the history of film with 16 millimeter prints at Wittenberg. And I walked in, I thought, great, you know, and I was there very quickly. So it must have been right at the very beginning, maybe even the very first show, because I remember the very first film that he put up was The Great Train Robbery, Thomas Edison, 1903, which is considered, you know, the beginning of dramatic film. So there was a piano, you know, (laughs) and I walked up to Harry. Hey, there's a piano. (laughs) There's supposed to be music with these. He says, well, can you do it? And my standard answer To anybody who asks me that question in anything is sure yeah (laughs) so i sat down and played the piano for the great train robbery i had no idea they wrote music for these movies not a clue and i made up what i needed to do based upon simply my own thought and experience which literally is how film music began i mean they just it was a functional thing so here i was Thinking, and I can remember, I can literally remember the thought. I thought, oh, 1903, ragtime, I'll play ragtime. So I thought of a rag, I don't remember which one now, but I just played a rag. Uh, I like to think it was a rag written in 1903, but I can't say at this point. But I played a rag, and it worked. It was the opening credits. And then the story started. And I can still remember thinking, oh, I got to (laughs) change, you know. So I played another rag. That worked. And then the story began, literally, I mean, it was first, it was the change to a, a title that explained what's happening. And then people started doing things. And I can still remember the thought, oh, 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 better, better do something. And the image that came to mind was cartoon music, Bugs Bunny especially. But it was just the notion of music with image. So I broke immediately. I can still remember doing it into cliche things. Um, You know, the sort of yum-dum-dum-dum for the villain kind of a thing, you know? And it worked. But the people laughed. And I didn't mean for them to laugh. I was just scrambling with something to do. But that association of cartoon music caused laughter, which imposed comedy onto the film. And that was a lesson. Really intriguing. So I broke away from cliché and broke into just coming up with something that I felt better which meant composition, spontaneous composition. We call it improvisation today, and it truly was. I hadn't seen that film. So that is real improvisation. And I and we got through it. And I began playing every week at that point.
0: So you were playing piano for the film series there.
3: Right, whatever the film was.
0: You've, you've said that really, uh, to some degree, your junior year or so was when you discovered a career just a, a couple of walls
3: away from here. Yeah. At the IU Auditorium. Yeah. Tell us that story. Oh, it's a good one. Well, I do have to say that it was a couple of years into playing the piano each week for those films until it dawned on me to ask that if I saw the film in the afternoon before I played for it, I probably could do a better job. And then everything really changed when uh, the Museum of Art sent us a print of uh, Beaugest with Ronald Coleman and a score with it an actual written score. First time I saw one, I was floored. And that's the key element that got me into the thought of this as something beyond a novel thing to do with an ability that I had into something that perhaps is a professional activity that is vital, you know, something that still is alive. And that started the research. Well, the whole thing that happened next door, (laughs) IU Auditorium, what happened is they put the new organ in. New meaning they replaced the Roosevelt organ, which came from the Auditorium Theater in Chicago. And it was a glorious instrument, a really historic, glorious instrument that by 1960s, late 60s, was completely out of fashion. Um, It was a symphonic organ. It was an organ that is exactly the sort of thing that was often used with silent film. But anyway, the whole thing is that they had this big historic organ that they threw out. They literally Students were away Parts. They put it in the, in the alley out on the side here when they tossed it, and they put in a new organ. And the new organ was then considered a major concert instrument. And I wanted to play it. I'm an organ student. You know, I want to play this thing. And, of course, there's no way I'm going to get to touch this brand-new, wonderful concert instrument. So I really started to kind of hive up an idea that would let me play that organ. So the whole generation was I wanted to play it. And I had the notion sitting around talking with my dormitory roommate. And I said, you know, my dad has always told me stories about attending the Phantom of the Opera when he was, in 1925, he would have been six years old. And he, he could remember such details as the Phantom's cape was red, which was quite dramatic. Uh, it was a, a tinting process called the Hans Schliegel process where they actually tinted a single component of an image and they made it bright red. And, and my dad at age six could remember that. So anyway, that all was cooking. And then I thought Halloween, Halloween night, let's show Phantom of the Opera in the school auditorium. This will be great, you know. And I went to the school craft shop and printed up by hand 400 tickets, you know. I made a deal with the uh, my teacher <laughs> and the American Guild of Organists chapter, to sponsor it because I rapidly discovered the business instincts in me that a student was not allowed to use a university facility for private gain, even though, of course, the private gain was to pay for my tuition. But anyway, so essentially they said, as long as we don't have to do anything, we'll split the proceeds with you. So I connived up all these things. It was quite an experience, real instant learning about marketing. I started a campaign 30 days before the performance. I printed up little um, stickers that said the Phantom is coming and went around in the morning to all of the male toilet stalls in all of the dorms and stuck them on the insides of the lids. And so the people, when they lifted the lid would see that I uh, took out an ad in the daily student, the smallest, cheapest ad, a little one-liner. It said the Phantom's coming and just had that at the bottom of the front page articles, Um, went around campus. I painted with a stencil on the sidewalks. And I, I put little striped posters, just all. That's all the campaign said for 30 days. The phantom's coming. So it was a real fever. This, what's this phantom's coming, you know? And it was only explained the day before the show. A friend of mine was an IDS a writer, and he did a front-page article. It put me on NPR, All Things Considered. Uh, new idea for fundraising on campus. You don't have to do car washes and bake sales. Put on a silent movie with Dennis James. And that was where the career started. Right there, I started getting invitations from college and schools all all through the state. And I started traveling on weekends.
0: That was WFIU's George Walker speaking with Dennis James in 2011. Copies of this, or other programs, can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about Profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found at our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios of Indiana University. Josh Brewer is the producer, the studio engineer, and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles.